Good afternoon. Thank you for tuning in. News Talk 95.3, Michiana's news channel. I'm your host, Casey Hendrickson. want to thank you for joining us today. Brexit is complete, well, almost, nearly, and they are irritated, to say the least, in the European Union. We'll get to that here in just a second. First, I want to thank our sponsor, R&B Car Company, locations in South Bend and Warsaw. Again, go to rbcarcompany.com for special deals and promotional offers today. Okay, here's what we have. The European Parliament rubber-stamped the Brexit deal. It was 621, was it 621 to 49. Now, they did say that the European Union was, the, the vote in the European Union was going to be a formality, okay? And I guess that was accurate because 621 votes in favor of the UK leaving 49 against 13 people abstained. Uh, what do we have here? European parliament president David Sassoli signed the withdrawal agreement on behalf of its members. He said that he would give the document to the European commission for the final administrative work for Brexit to take, excuse me, to take place on Thursday before the United Kingdom formally withdraws at midnight Brussels time Friday. Well, it would appear that Boris was right. They were going to be out of the European Union by the end of the month. So here's what I would like to say to the British folks out there. And I I have several people, believe it or not, several people in the UK who listen to this program. And I just want to say congratulations. You got your country back. And, you know, it's it's funny. I've. I've been watching the, I've been watching the comparisons and things like that um, today, where people are running around and saying, "Oh, the UK, they got their sovereignty back, but the US lost theirs with the USMCA." And it's 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 not like that, but uh, it's it's interesting to watch it. Everything is a fire sale, right? So the the European Union has has gone along with it. Uh, the British people finally, after a long time, I, I mean, it feels longer, but. Um, than it really has been, but holy smokes. You know, they wanted to leave. Uh, then the opposition was blocking it and protests in the streets and all this. And finally, they got what they they wanted. And it took another election for them to do it, by the way. They had to overwhelmingly take control of parliament. And it showed that they did. Uh, and so, if nothing else, it shows that the original Brexit vote was not a fluke and was not just a marketing gimmick. People actually wanted to leave the European European Union, and now that is going to happen. The European Union is not standing in the way of that. So Nigel Farage, in a final EU speech, hailed the victory as an historic battle between globalism and populism. And after he was done with his speech, his rousing speech, by the way, uh, the EU vice president ordered the British flags removed from Parliament. <laughs> so... I mean, look, it's, I mean, it, it is a formality, but, you know, it's, you have to understand there's a little bit of the, the buttheartedness that is going on. The incident occurred during a formal vote to rubber stamp Britain's departure from the globalist body. Uh, this is from Summit News, which is Paul Joseph Watson's uh, website. And of course, he is of that, uh, he's, well, I guess he's British. Uh, Farage gave a rousing speech to mark his final appearance in the chamber just two days before Brexit is finally completed on Friday. And again, the UK, congratulations, you have your country back. We look forward to 
the new trade deal that will go along with the new trade deals we had with China, with Mexico, and with Canada. We love Europe. We just hate the European Union, Farage said. <laughs> he, he, um, Nigel Farage is a character. There's no doubt about that. He labeled the EU as an anti-democratic institution that gave technocrats power without accountability. Now, we have covered the European Union just like everybody else has. And I'll tell you something. Nigel Farage has got some points there. And it's one of the reasons that the vote went the way that it did twice in the United Kingdom. Because there is a large and long list of examples of the European Union abusing its power over its member states. And the U.K. was taking the brunt of it. And they were just sick and tired. When the European Union formed, you have to understand something. The European economy was crap. Okay, there was basically two countries that had thriving economies that became member nations or member states, I should say, of the European Union. That was the UK and Germany. And Germany um, has kind of gone along with it. Germany's been, you know, a unification advocate. And then eventually got to the point where Britain was just like, you know what? We're sick and tired of this. We are done. We want to go our own way. We were successful without the European Union and we will be successful without them again. And all of the fear-mongering about the European Union's economy collapsing and everything else, or the, uh, the, the UK's economy collapsing if they left the European Union, none of that is going to materialize. I just, it's just not. And right now they're projecting that their economy is actually going to grow. And why wouldn't it grow? They don't have to worry about propping up governments in the European Union that are bankrupt. Greece has been such a drain on the EU, it's ridiculous. So anyway, Brexit party leader then spoke of an historic battle taking place in the West. It is globalism against populism, and you may loathe populism, but I'll tell you a funny thing. It's becoming very popular, he said. I know you want to ban our national flags, but we're going to wave you goodbye. That's what he said before his audio was cut. So Nigel Farage's audio was cut. The, the British flags ordered taken down by the president of the European Union. And here we go. Two more days. There will be a Great Britain standing alone again, along with her allies. So huge move. And finally, after all of this time, finally being a success in the uh, in the the fight for Brexit. And of course, you know, look, it it it's it's an, I, if you ask me, this is exciting. You know, I, I don't know why anybody would be scared. It's not like they've been a part of the European Union for a long time or anything. And they were a very, very successful economic powerhouse before the EU. Why wouldn't they be successful and an economic powerhouse after the EU? You know, we're not talking about a nation who has been solely reliant upon the EU for generations or anything like that. It doesn't make any sense. So they're obviously very industrious. They're very intelligent. uh, They're business minded. They're capitalist minded. And they are going to be successful. Of course, President Trump has made it very clear. We've got a trade deal just waiting for the uh, the British once they get out of the European Union uh, to go ahead and send them. And that we have vowed to work together and we will see exactly how that all goes. We don't have a lot of the details of that, uh, but I assume that it's going to be very good for the energy sector in particular. And it could be good for labor as well. You know, it's um, there is a concern when we were in Ireland uh, a couple of years back. Was it three years now, I guess? When we were in Ireland, there was concern among the Irish that it would be an issue with North Northern Ireland and then Ireland. And I, I don't know that I, I see that being an issue. I, you know, I, I just I, I don't. But, you know, who knows? Time's going to tell. Right. But right now, 
congratulations to the British. You know, welcome to the international community again as a sovereign nation. We welcome working with you in the future. Uh, there is some individuals in other nations now in the European Union saying, and now in particular, one of the socialist leaders in Germany said that Britain's not going to be the last country to leave. There's others. They're already working on on removing themselves from the European Union, which seems to indicate that the European Union isn't the paradise that they once proclaimed it to be. Otherwise, you would certainly have um, more nations wanting to stick with it. But it appears that the cracks are now forming and countries want their sovereignty back. So we'll see how it all goes. But congratulations to the British. They finally got what they voted for and they had to win another election just to get it. We've got more coming up on News Talk 95.3, Michiana's News Channel. Hey, good afternoon. Thank you for tuning in. News Talk 95.3, Michiana's News Channel. Once again, I am your host, Casey Hendrickson. I want to thank you for joining us today. And for those of you who are also watching on the live stream or listening on the audio stream, I want to thank you for your support. 574-25-95-953. That is 2595-953 if you'd like to join us. The historic Israeli-Palestinian peace plan. And it is historic. The, the issue is that the Palestinians are once again pretending that they don't want it. Um, now, you have to understand something about, about Palestine. The people, generally speaking, Palestinians want peace, and they just... They, they honestly, they just want whatever is happening to be settled so they know what's going on. And they want, they want to, most people, they want to get out from the thumb of Hamas and the PLO and that sort of thing, but they really don't have the option. And when you see a lot of these protests and things of that nature, as we have seen from people who've escaped, they are often forced. So if you don't show up at these protests, you lose a stipend that is given to you by Hamas or, or the PLO to a lesser extent. Um, they will shut off water to your home, that sort of stuff. And, you know, we've heard many of these stories over the years. So when you see these protests with the Palestinians, there's obviously some radicals who absolutely are out there protesting. But there's also a lot of people that are participating because they are forced to do so. OK, which is, you know, one of the hallmarks of a desperate regime. Now. This deal. Gives the Palestinians the most that they have ever been offered. They will have a dramatic increase in the land that they currently occupy. Uh, they will be given, or they'll be given Gaza or the West Bank. I forget which one of them they're going to be given. I think it's Gaza. Don't quote me on that. Um, so one of the disputed territories becomes theirs. They're going to be given their capital in eastern Jerusalem. Jordan is still going to maintain third third party administration of Jerusalem, and they've rejected it outright. And this is the best deal that they have ever had their own country, more land than they've ever had, capital in Jerusalem, and even being given back one of the disputed territories. And, and they, have, they have just said, nope, not interested. And when people run around, U.S. media in particular, run around and go, there's no Palestinians at the press conference today on the peace plan. Well, yeah, Abbas was called and he wouldn't take the president's phone call. Okay? The president wanted to have him there. He chose not to. Because... They do not want any part of Jerusalem to be a part of Israel, period. That's their position, according to the statement that they released yesterday, anyway. 
Perhaps the sole silver lining of the otherwise harrowing capitulation to fundamentalist jihadist evil was that President Barack Obama's Iran nuclear deal was the fact that the leading Sunni Arab state, Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, the e- and Egypt, chief among them, began to warm up to the Jewish state of Israel. The enemy of my enemy, as the venerable Maxim goes, is indeed my friend. And these Sunni stalwarts have found common cause with Israel in opposing the Islamic Republic of Iran's decades-long hegemonic ambitions, which were only augmented by the capitulatory, uh, capitulatory excuse me, cash influxes provided by the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action. This is Josh Hammer and the Daily Wire, who obviously writes with a dictionary sitting next to him. To date, however, the thawing of relations was generally taken a clandestine form, mostly on the intelligence and counterintelligence level. But the unveiling yesterday by President Donald Trump's deal of the century peace proposal for Israel and the Palestinian Arabs represents the clearest public sign yet of just how far this thawing has progressed. It is nothing short of remarkable just how far we have come when considering the three no's of the infamous 1967 Khartoum resolutions decried, decreed excuse me, in the aftermath of Israel's miraculous six-day war victory. No peace with Israel, no recognition of Israel, and no negotiations with Israel. Keep in mind, that is a war that the Israelis did not start. For starters, as Hank Berrien reported yesterday, Ambassador Youssef Al-Otaibi, or Taiba of the UAE, Ambassador Abdullah bin Rashid al-Khalifa of Bahrain and the Ambassador Hunaina al-Muhari of Oman were in the East Room of the White House on Tuesday as Trump announced his plan. It is unprecedented to have such leading representatives from Sunni Arab governments effectively recognizing Israel's right under UN Security Council Resolution 242, quote, to live in peace within secure and recognized boundaries free from threats or acts of force. So what he is saying here is he's like, you've got represent. there's pictures, by the way, you've got representatives from these Sunni nations who are highly influential in the Middle East supporting this peace plan with Israel and the Palestinians. Supporting it. Not opposing it. Not whipping the Palestinians up into a frenzy and using them as pawns, but saying, hey, um, Palestinians, it's time. It, you're getting a great deal here. It is time. And of course, the Palestinians are saying no. It is even more unprecedented for such Arab governments to effectively recognize this international law right in the context of what is quite clearly on the underlying merits, the most pro-Israel peace plan ever offered by an American president and one that is offered by a historically pro-Israel American president and a conservative um, party leader. And the prime minister, no less. Uh, Numerous Arab governments, furthermore, have offered public endorsements of the Trump plan that invariably refer to it as a welcoming or promising development. So you got the king of Saudi Arabia. um, And again, this is where Mecca is. Saudi Arabia supports it. They said that the kingdom appreciates the efforts of President Trump's administration to develop a comprehensive peace plan between the Palestinian and Israeli sides and encourages the start of direct peace negotiations between the Palestinian and Israeli sides. Now, and this is the thing. There's a four-year gap here with this deal. So this four-year gap allows the Palestinians to review the agreement and decide what changes they might want to have with this agreement and then negotiate that with Israel. Okay? So there's a four-year kind of a break where the deal that the United States brokered says Israel is not going to develop these areas 
that would become a part of the new state of Palestine. They would not develop there. So that way the Palestinians can overlook everything and make some decisions and maybe make a counteroffer and, and start the negotiated process. And Saudi Arabia says, we absolutely like this idea and we encourage the Palestinians to come to the table. So Qatar, or Qatar, as Hannity likes to say, welcomes all efforts aiming towards a long-standing and just peace in the occupied Palestinian territories. It also appreciates the endeavors of President Trump and the current U.S. administration to find solutions for the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. By the way, as Dolemont from CNN goes out there and mocks President Trump for having no idea about foreign policy, you've got a bunch of Arab nations right here saying, we really like what President Trump has done with the Israeli-Palestinian peace plan. This is a great start. Wouldn't that be considered a foreign policy win considering the history of the region between these two? From Egypt, the Arab Republic of Egypt appreciates the continuous efforts exerted by the U.S. administration to achieve a comprehensive and just settlement of the Palestinian issue thereby contributing to the stability and security of the Middle East, ending the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. The Kingdom of Morocco. They express the wish that a constructive peace process be launched from now on with a view to a realistic, applicable, equitable, and lasting solution to the Israeli-Palestinian question. And, and this is the thing. When you look at this, and obviously some of them had some language in there, talking about occupied or... Um, you know, legitimate rights of the Palestinian people, et cetera, et cetera. Et cetera. Um, but if you look at all of this, <laughs> you've got these Arab states saying, we really like the plan. Now, 2020 Democratic presidential candidates have all criticized the plan. Well, maybe they should check their white privilege. Their white Christian privilege. Because you got a bunch of pasty white Christian folks in the West saying they don't like the Palestinian-Israeli plan. And then you've got a bunch of non-white Muslim nations in the Middle East who say this is pretty good. And the Palestinians should probably consider it and maybe make some, some negotiations, come to the table. They've got four years to do it and maybe try to get a little bit more if they can. So the Arab world seems to, for the most part, the peaceful Arab world, I should say, seems to like the deal pasty white folks who aren't supposed to have an opinion about things that involve minorities anyway are running around saying that they don't like the deal. Huh. And again, this gives a, it gives the Palestinians something like, uh, like 75 or 80% of what they have demanded the most in the past. Again, a capital in eastern Jerusalem uh, much more land than they have now. One of the disputed territories that was seized by Israel during war, th- that goes back to the Palestinians. And they've got four years to look over this thing. Like I said, this is this is a really good deal for the Palestinians. And you've got a boss just go, no, nope, no, nope, we're not interested in it. And a boss has been the, quote, reasonable of the Palestinian leadership. And right now, he's not. Now, for the record... Uh, I have to clarify this again from yesterday because U.S. media was running around and saying, Palestinians are protesting the peace deal. Now, they were protesting before the peace deal was released, and the media didn't clarify that. They were protesting before anybody had any any terms of the deal, and they were protesting weeks before that. So U.S. media tried to spin it that Palestinians hated it and were protesting the deal, but they hadn't seen it. They didn't know any of the provisions of it. And for what we have heard from interviews on the ground with people who have gone and actually been inside Palestine, 
and talked with the Palestinian people is that the vast majority of the folks were just there. They want this crap to end. They want Hamas to go away. They want the PLO to start looking for peace instead of antagonizing Israel. They, they want Israel to not have to engage in force. And, and many of the Palestinians, by the way, acknowledge that Israel responds to force. They just want to live peacefully. They don't hate Jews. They don't hate Israelis. Most Israelis don't hate Palestinians. The people generally are okay with one another. A lot of Palestinians leave Palestine and go to work in Israel where they have good jobs and they're taken care of. The U.S. media doesn't talk about this. But of course, you've got, you've got money and power to lose if you take this deal, if you're the PLO or Hamas. And that's the problem. We've got more coming up on News Talk 95.3, Michiana's news channel. And good afternoon. Thank you for tuning in. News Talk 95.3, Michiana's news channel. I am your host, Casey Hendrickson. All right, boy, there is a lot going around. Uh, Vice President Joe Biden said something stupid. <laughs> well, okay. Let me <laughs> stupid from a perspective of being a politician, but probably more honest than he should have been. We'll get to, we'll get to what he said in just a second. In the meantime, I would like to thank our sponsor, R&B Car Company, locations in South Bend, and of course Warsaw. Go to rbcarcompany.com for today's special promotions and offers on used cars, trucks, SUVs, minivans, crossovers, and more. All right, so we have Yusuf Biden. All right, so Joseph Biden, he is. This, I look. This is this I, this is a campaign killer. But honestly, it is very very honest. He says, "Whomever I pick for vice president must be capable of being president because I'm an old guy." Nothing says elect me like saying. I'm going to die in office because I'm old. But he was honest. Look, I got to give him credit, right? Bernie Sanders is out there getting knocked out by speed bags and stuff and viral videos. And he's out there going, I'm going to live forever. Don't you know? Socialized healthcare is going to keep me alive forever. Okay. <laughs> this is, I've got to give him credit, though. He said it. And then, just in case you thought that Joe Biden was kidding, he goes, no, I'm serious. <laughs> You got it. You got to love it. You got to love it. Uh, I, I would play the audio, but I haven't had a chance to screen it yet, and I don't want to play something on the air without screening it. So, uh, <laughs> uh, Democrat presidential candidate Joe Biden said Tuesday that it is important that whoever he selects to be the vice president, assuming he secures his party's nomination and, of course, wins, is able to be president because he is an old guy. I can think of at least eight women at least four or five people of color that I think are totally qualified to be vice president of the United States, Biden said. I want you to remember that. I can think of at least eight women and at least four or five people of color. Remember that statement, because if he wins the party's nomination, it'll be interesting to see if he actually picks one of those categories of people. Because if he doesn't, this is going to come back to bite him. And for the record, I mean, isn't this just the same as the whole binders full of women thing that Mitt Romney had to deal with? You know, Mitt Romney, you're not very friendly to women. Well, look, I've got binders full of women here that I think are qualified for positions in my cabinet. Oh, he hates women because he wants to hire so many of them. 
It was one of the stupidest attacks on a politician I think I've ever seen in my entire life. So he goes out there, he says, I've got at least eight women, at least four or five people of color. One of them, probably Elizabeth Warren. Actually, does Elizabeth Warren count as two? Does she count as a woman and a person of color? So is it really, uh, you know, eight women and five people of color, but really it's just, you know, it's, it's actually 12 people and not 13? I'm just asking for a friend, ladies and gentlemen. That's all, it just, you know. Uh, but for me, it has demonstrated that whoever I pick is two things. One, is capable of being president because I'm an old guy, he said. The crowd laughed, and he goes, no, I'm serious. Look, thank God I'm in great health. I'm surprised he didn't challenge the crowd to a push-up contest like he's, he's known to do. What's going to happen if somebody takes him up on the push-up contest offer? He can't say no. If you're running for president and you're constantly running around saying, I want to kick his butt and I can do more push-ups than you, buster. <laughs> if, if you're constantly doing that and somebody says, all right, let's go. Let's do the push-up thing. Obviously, they're not going to let him fight, but let's do the push-up thing. He can't back down from it. He said it too many times. He's going to have the press gaggle there going, yeah, Joe, go after him. Do the push-up contest. I hope he can do push-ups. I hope he's not doing uh, the push-ups where you're on your knees and stuff like that. Uh, so he says, "I look, uh, thank God I'm in great health. I work out. No, I'm serious. You know, I work out every morning. I'm in good shape. I guess the crowd was still laughing. With his remarks, Biden played right into President Trump's nickname for him, Sleepy Joe Biden, suggesting the very slow and exhausted candidate is running out of energy. So, <laughs> um, I've got to tell you, it's I. It's refreshing to have that type of honesty in somebody who is that old, and he is old, okay? And here's the thing about this. If he doesn't become president, Joe Biden could very well live another four years, all right? The problem is, is that we see people who become president age so much, so fast. Everybody. And it always gets into their second term where we start looking back at what they looked like when they were inaugurated, And we look back and we go, holy moly, this must be a very difficult job because everybody ages way, way faster than they would if they were not president of the United States. It's just one of those things that happens, you know, Uh, and you assume that the job is is a difficult job. Now, Trump has been in office for three years. He doesn't appear to have aged all that much, but it's only been three years, you know. And probably should have aged a heck of a lot more considering everything that he has been through. But I got to give Joe Biden credit for being honest, letting everybody know that it's very possible that he's going to die in office. And you should probably really, really vet my vice presidential nominee. So I got to give him that. We have more coming up. News Talk 95.3, Michiana's News Channel. Good afternoon. Thank you for tuning in. News Talk 95.3, Michiana's news channel. So we've got a bit of breaking news here. Paul Sperry, now he is the investigative reporter for Real Clear Investigations, who broke the news about who the alleged whistleblower slash leaker was. He's the one that identified him as Eric Charmella. Now, again, Charmella's name had been out there for some time. 
but Paul Sperry was the one that confirmed it was him, and he published it. So Eric Charmella, as most of you know, is a CIA operative who was accused of being the whistleblower in this uh, Ukrainian uh, phone call with Zelensky and did not hear the phone call directly. But he's also he's also very questionable in that he he has long been a never Trumper, wanted nothing to do with Trump before Trump was actually inaugurated. Uh, had discussions about sabotaging Trump's presidency. And the people that he worked with who left the White House immediately went to work for Adam Schiff. And then Adam Schiff, of course, works with and meets, or his staff gets word and has discussions with the whistleblower and all of that other stuff, which, of course, they have denied. But the evidence seems pretty conclusive that they did, in fact, meet with him. So, Eric Charmella, most of you have known for several months now, I have called him Charlie. Now, the reason that he has been called Charlie is not because a bunch of people are butthurt about his name being out there because some people don't know what they're talking about, and that includes many people in the news business, that he somehow has uh, anonymity protection. He does not have any anonymity protection. He doesn't. There is no protections from his name being released to the public, is no protections for his name being in the press, none whatsoever. The anonymity protections for the whistleblower, Eric Charamella, if he is the whistleblower and all of the evidence points to him, is simply that his immediate chain of command doesn't have to know who he is, so they can't take uh, reprisals against him. That's the whole idea of this. It has nothing to do, has nothing to do with if a reporter finds out, putting his name out in public. Okay, So Eric Charamella a.k.a. Charlie. The Charlie bit is because he is rumored to be somebody who was at these meetings with Joe Biden, Ukrainian officials, that sort of thing, and they were talking about Ukrainian issues. The problem is that Eric Charamella, in his CIA job, is not a Ukrainian expert at all. His expertise lies in the Mediterranean. So, why is Charamella at these meetings with high-profile Trump uh, Obama administration officials talking about Ukrainian policy? It was, it was all out of whack, okay? And he was in the, the released and, I, well, I guess declassified text messages uh, between uh, uh, side piece Lisa Page and her beau that he was Charlie, all right? So... And by the way, they kind of listed him as an operative. You know, did we want him as the operative or do we want this other individual as the operative in that meeting? And so we've been calling him Charlie for some time because the suspicion is, is that uh, Charlie is Eric Charamella. And it appears that there is some kind of a weird relationship. I won't call it a conspiracy, but it doesn't look right with him and other individuals and in sabotaging the incoming Trump administration. So. Paul Sperry, breaking news, just five minutes ago on his Twitter, he posted a picture. Eric Charamella, the CIA operative believed to be the whistleblowers captured in this 2015 photo, taking notes, uh, let's see, between Biden advisor Michael Carpenter and NSC's Liz Zentos in a White House meeting with Ukrainian officials. Carpenter later appeared with Biden in the infamous son of a B-word video. This is all very interesting. Now, what does it mean? Don't entirely know just yet, but Paul Sperry's got this photo from 2015, which obviously goes back further than the timeline that we've been working on 
with Agent Charlie. But it appears that Charamella has a long, rich history of working with Biden officials, okay, and dealing with Ukrainian issues, even though that's not his area of expertise at the CIA. So all very interesting things. Um, and again, Paul Sperry, I assume, will have some some reports. I assume that this is just a tease for something else that is going to come out. And I, I, I don't know exactly what he's going to uncover, but it sure does look suspicious. So stay tuned. We'll have some updates on that, hopefully, by the end of the week. Okay. 574-2595-953. Can you cue up my audio, please, Joe? I want to go ahead and play the audio of Joe Biden actually saying that he's an old man. This is Joe Biden I wanted to screen it during the commercial breaks. So that way I knew that I could play it for you and that somebody hadn't dubbed something on it. I can think of at least eight women, at least four or five people of color, that I think are totally qualified to be vice president of the United States. But for me, it has to be demonstrated that whoever I pick is two things. One, is capable of needing to be president because I'm an old guy. Okay. No, but I'm serious. Look, I'm thank God. I'm in great health. I work out. No, I'm serious. I, you know, I work out every morning. I'm in good shape. Knock on wood, as my mother would say. I look, look. You got to give it to him. He's being honest. I, I can't argue with. He is an old guy. It's always a concern. It is always a concern. Um, it was just recently another. Another study about looks in politics, of course, this always goes back to the first televised debate between Nixon and Kennedy, where Nixon, who had been sick, uh, was obviously not seen as the winner of that debate on television. But on radio, people said that Nixon won. But on television, people liked the way that Kennedy looked. He just looked presidential. Good looking guy. Been bronzed from he was out, I think, doing some recreational stuff in the sun and a nice little tan and everything else. So I ran into this this article from December, the last day, New Year's Eve of last year. And it says, beauty on the ballot. Candidates' attractiveness plays role in voters' decisions, especially in the United States of America. And there are people out there who want you to believe that that is not the case. But I assure you, it is the case. I can't count how many elections I have covered where the attractiveness of the candidate has been paramount. And by the way, we saw this all the time with President Obama, then candidate Obama. It was a running theme. He was attractive. And people mock people's looks. I mean, they mock people. Look, Republicans do it with Hillary Clinton. Uh, Democrats do it with, with Donald Trump. They did it with Bush. Um, they did it with Reagan. They did it with Dole. You know, it, this is just one of those things. They did it with Clinton. It comes up all the time. So, yeah, I'm not going to go through the whole research. It's just that they found out that uh, this is this is a thing everywhere, but especially in the United States of America, um, the appearance and the attractiveness of the candidate is a huge draw for people to vote for somebody, and especially in the United States. And, in fact, they said that it often it often is more important than party affiliation for many voters. How about that? All right, 574-2595-953. We've got a lot more to cover. It's been a busy, busy news day. We've got more coming up on 95.3 MNC.